Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabutomukuditwa, and in today's episode, we're going to be discussing behavioral modifications for enuresis. And I am joined in the conversation today by Lizelle Grindel, who's a neuroelectrophysiologist. A warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us for the conversation. Thank you, Zoya. So maybe to kick off, I'm going to ask you just to tell us a little about yourself and specifically what your occupation is all about. What does it entail? So I'm a neuroelectrophysiologist whereby we assist the urologists, the gynecologists, the neurologists, the neurosurgeons, where they found when nerves are damaged or they need to be rehabilitated. And we then assist to fix that nerve and rehabilitate that nerve. It sounds like very intensive work. And I'm going to see how we can link what you do to our conversation, which is all about uh, those behavioral modifications for enuresis. So let's kickstart the conversation. And, and maybe a starting place is what is enuresis? So enuresis happens at night it's an involuntary wetting so kids that wet the bed so you get primary enuresis that's where kids have never been dry longer than six months and secondary enuresis where the kid was dry for six months and then all of a sudden the bed is wet again so according to our organizations we want the kid to be dry by the age of five Hmm. But there's a lot of physiological things that can go wrong. We know in the past a lot of people thought it was psychological, but it's not psychological. It's a physiological problem. And and maybe to build on that then, you know, what are some of the causes of enuresis? So you talk about primary and secondary, and certainly at some point we thought that this was, you know, psychological. What are the causes of enuresis? So firstly, the mother and father. If the mother or father, so if your one parent mm. was a bedwetter, it can be as bad as 40% that your child can be wet. So it's hereditary. Both parents, 70%. No parent, up to 17%. Mm. So that's for primary enuresis. I want to ask a question because I'm realizing now that I'm, I'm very ignorant. I don't, I don't know enough about this topic because you said something interesting about how it could come from the parents. And mm. yet I thought that bedwetting is part of every child's growth and development phase. Interesting. So, yes, it can and cannot be. So a lot of people think if my child is daytime dry, mm. it's going to be nighttime dry as well. And it doesn't happen like that. Normally it's daytime drive first. And then the night will come secondary. The child has to have bladder control in the day. And feel that sensation which we'll talk about. If the child doesn't have that sensation, then obviously and the bladder is small, they're going to wet at night as well. And this is why you made that important distinction in the beginning to say that Enuresis speaks specifically to that bedwetting or involuntary urination at night. At night. Uh-huh. But also one of the causes is a small bladder capacity. Mm. 
So I want to explain this to you. And I think it's a lot of parents is going to, is going to understand. I don't want to explain it academic. I want to mm. explain it where we understand. So let's say your my bladder for our age as a woman needs to be between four and 500 milliliters. Okay. Our frequency, that's how, how many times we're going to avoid in the day needs to be between four and six times normality. So let's say we urinate four times. Mm-hmm. And our bladder capacity is 500 more. So that's four times 500 more. I go and sleep. I want to sleep through the night. I don't have a bladder capacity of two liters. Mm. So there's a hormone that gets released from the pituitary gland called that, that's your antidiuretic hormone. Mm. That will then contrast the bladder capacity. So it will accumulate all the urine into one bladder. Mm. Your ability to hold. So that will be 500. So if you have a small bladder capacity, say for instance, 100 mils, mm-hmm. you're supposed to have 500, 100 mils. You're going to get up five times at night. Yeah. So it will concentrate that urine into the two liters into one bladder capacity. So that can be your secondary problem. Mm. So your child doesn't release the antidiuretic hormone or it can be a small bladder capacity. That's also one of the causes. Okay. So I'm sleeping at night. Mm-hmm. I typically sort of during the day would go to the bathroom four times. At night, you're saying that the urine is concentrated into a bladder capacity. Normally for your age. So for your age, it should be, for a woman, it should be between four and 500. So you don't, if you urinate the whole day four times, mm. that's two liters. Mm. So what happens when you talk about, and I'm trying to get my head yes. around, when you said concentrates it into a bladder capacity, what does that mean? So the urine concentrates. Your bladder calms down. It releases that hormone that goes to the kidneys mm. to concentrate the urine. Ah, okay, okay. To concentrate the <laughs> urine into the one bladder capacity. Okay. So with kids that's got bed wetting, they can have two problems. Some of them concentrates the urine, mm. but their bladder capacities are small. Understood. Or they've got both problems. Okay. It's going to be interesting as we unpack all of this. I mean, this is already <laughs> very interesting for me. Before we go further with understanding any rhesus and the causes and the commonality of this, there's another term I, I, I came up on as I was doing a little bit of the research around this topic, and the term is bladder instability. Sure. And I want to connect that to, you know, understanding whether you have small bladder or, or large bladder capacity. Is there a relation? What is what is uh, bladder instability all about? So let's unpack bladder instability. So bladder instability, a lot of people think bladder irritability, overactive bladder, that's more or less the same. So during your filling phase of your bladder, this is now when your bladder fills up with urine. Mm-hmm. Your bladder is in a resting state. When you go and feel like you want to go and void, your bladder, the muscle on top of the bladder, the detrusital muscle, will then contract and you empty. Void is to go to the loo. Yes. Okay. <laughs> when your bladder is irritable or unstable, mm. the bladder contracts when you're not supposed to go and urinate. So it feels, it actually feels irritated the whole time. Mm. 
I think I may have had this when I was pregnant. Is that possible? Oh yes. Okay. Oh yes. Just as you're describing this, that 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 feeling of like a bladder that's contracting and there may be nothing in there. Hundred percent. So, in kids, they get that also. Sure. So if they drink, for instance, cool drink with gas or um, milkshakes, or and their bladders is irritable, mm. and they drink that, it will become more irritable. And and if we bring it back, Lizelle, to to today's conversation, really mm-hmm. about in uresis and those behavioural modifications. I mean, what are the linkages then? You know, from in uresis to bladder instability, or is that you know a completely different topic? It is a completely different topic because bladder instability is one of the causes of in uresis also. Aha. Uh-huh. So I think we need to really spend time. In the future, talking about bladder instability or overactive bladder. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about who is most at risk then for developing uh, enuresis. I'm curious about kind of, you know, who does this affect? Who does this impact? Bladder does not discriminate. Did you know that? <laughs> I know now. So, Sean John Combs, do you know who that is? P. Diddy. P. I'm telling you. <laughs> a whole P. Diddy. He so, admitted. So, so PDD, okay, tell me he, more. He admitted he, had, he was a bedwetter. Okay. Next one. Catherine Elizabeth Hudson. Katy Perry. Katy Perry Raw. Yeah. Oh my. Bedwetter. Okay. John Lennon's wife. Uh-huh. Uh, bedwetter. Yoko. Chrissy Tagan. I've forgotten her name now. Okay. Bedwetter. So these are all the celebrities. Yeah, but it's who have so disclosed this? I mean, I'm 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 also sitting with the publicly. question around how. I mean, at, at what point would P Diddy was he was he saying this in a rap? <laughs> I'm just joking. I've got no idea, but hmm. it's research. You know, that's what you that's what we try to find on on social media. But people are too embarrassed to talk about it. I mean, do we have local celebrities on of your list? Of course. Oh, we do. Yes. So, so who are some of the local celebrities? They do not talk about it. They only come, when they come to you, obviously that's part of the mm. intake that we ask them. Mm. They don't disclose that. Are you going to disclose you were a bedwetter when you were a child? But this is the problem. We are too embarrassed to disclose it. Yeah. It's so easy to fix. And I suppose you're quite correct that there is that stigma associated with it. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking about myself now and I'm trying to recall my own history um, and whether I was a bedwetter. Um, and I can't, I can't remember. I'd probably need to ask my parents. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I, I find that very interesting. And I think, and I think one of the things is to really destigmatize this. And, and so I'm going to move to the next question because I think it can assist in terms of destigmatizing, uh, in your recess. What are some of the most common misconceptions about it? There's a lot. First one is once the child is potty trained, mm. that's the daytime. I think we alluded about that before. The bed should be dry at night, and it's not. Mm. This is one of the most common myths that's out there, contrary to popular potty training books, methods. <laughs> Children should be expected to be dry at night. Um, so nighttime continence is the last of the potty training skills in a lot of kids. And this is where I get really hot under the collar. Mm. Crashes mm-hmm. your your preschool mm. after school. Mm. Don't they tell you as a mother you can't send your child to us if the child is not potty trained? Yeah. Now you do a twenty four hour quick quick. 
day dry, nighttime dry. And that caused problems because the kid's bladder capacity is not big enough to accomplish nighttime dry as well. So what do we say when the creches ask us to do that? No. No, I'm not bringing my child or no, no my child will is still bedwetting. Yeah, my child is still bedwetting and they will still have maybe daytime accidents. They need to understand how to manage this. Mm. And and I suppose, I mean, I'm thinking about how, and, and it connects that earlier conversation about, about stigmatization, that oftentimes we make our children feel this, this shame. And it connects directly to this point that the creches themselves, you know, are saying to us, please don't bring your child if they're going to wet the bed. I imagine what must happen to the child when they do do that in the creche, uh, you know, exactly. at the creche they wet their bed and... They get into trouble for it. Exactly. I've got a two and a half year old at home. Mm. It's my house executive's child. Wonderful. And she potty trained herself at home because she's obviously seeing what I'm doing at, at the house. And she's still in the afternoon sleep. She still waits. Mm. And it was an embarrassing thing for her. But the school has learned how to deal with it because we spoke to the school. Mm. You know, we advise and tell them what to do. Mm. Up until that kid can accommodate that bladder capacity, they will then be dry. Mm. And, and so let's talk a little bit about those behavioral modifications. Um, and I want to acknowledge your, your beautiful granddaughter uh, who's, who's potty trained <laughs> herself at two and a half. That's impressive. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll connect on that another time. <laughs> Let's talk about the behavioral modifications. I think that's really what, what the heart of this conversation is about. Yes. What are some of those that can be used to treat enuresis? So the treatment and behavioral modifications will not happen if we don't empower our kids. Okay. So I've, I've heard and heard so many people spoke about star charge, which is very good. But it doesn't help you just go and do a star chart, one for drinking water, one for eating right, one for um, not wetting the bed. We have to create a system that incentivizes the child. What is the child's interest there at that moment? Is it Ninja Turtles? Mm. Is it Barbie? And then it must be on a weekly basis. You have to incentivize the kids. Mm. Bribery and corruption with the kids because that's all they understand. <laughs> so one sticker for one action. Mm. And then make it a short term as well. You know, like four days and on a Friday, they work towards that mm. incentive. So water intake is a big thing for kids as well. Mm -hmm. If the kids don't drink enough water, then a lot of other things will complicate it, like constipation. So don't restrict your kid with fluids. A lot of these kids, you will see you've got three kids. If they are very thirsty in the afternoon, mm. you know they didn't drink enough in the day. Mm. So now they drink and drink and drink, four, five o'clock, drink, drink, drink. Of course they're going to wet the bed at night. And then what are they drinking? Is it milk? Is it coffee? Is it um, milkshake? Mm. Hot chocolate. Mm. So all those things play a big role. So encourage fluids through the whole day. More importantly, at school. Okay. I love that. So one of the other major behavioral modifications that parents do go wrong 
is lifting the child up at night. Mm-hmm. Meaning the child goes and sleep. Here at 10 o'clock, they lift the child up and they take the child to the, to the bathroom to go and void. You don't give that bladder time to expand, to teach what's happening. And this is where I quickly want to stop and talk about this just in case. Hmm. Do you go and make a turn at the bathroom quickly before you get into the car? How many times do you go and urinate before you go to the shops quickly? Me? Yeah. None. You're giving me a look. I'm getting nervous. <laughs> Am I supposed to go? <laughs> no, no, no. You're not supposed to, which is a very good thing. Okay. So a lot of people tell their kids, go and make a wee quickly. No, no, no. But you asked if I do it. If, yes. If you're asking me, I don't do it. But I tell my kids to do it. Okay. <laughs> We'll get there. Okay. So lots of them is, especially before church, especially before you go to the shopping center, go make a wee-wee before we get into the car. No, mommy, I don't want. Go Go make a (laughs) wee-wee. The bladder sends the brain four warning signals. The first Hmm. warning signal is just the sensation. This is where your bladder capacity is only 25% full. You don't go make a urination. Hmm. An hour later, you get your second Warning, that's your first urge to urinate. That's where your bladder capacity is 50% full. Mm-mm. You still think, no, I don't need to go. After a time, you get the third warning. That's where your bladder capacity is 75% full. Now you're getting like a little bit itchy and I need to go, but I'm busy at work. No, let me go a little bit later. Your fourth warning that's when your bladder is 100% full. Mm. So normally, we all go and urinate at 75%. The 100% is when you wake up the first thing in the morning. So if you go and urinate, but remember I said the bladder wound the brain. Mm. If you go and urinate just in case, mm. the bladder didn't wound the brain. Mm. So what happens with a child, when you expand that bladder, expand that bladder, you allow the stretch receptor nerves in the bladder mm. to send that signals, that four sensations to your brain. Even when your bladder is not yet ready for you to go to the bathroom. Yes, because it tells you first sensation, first urge, second urge. Oh my goodness, I need to go. What is the, what is the long-term implication of that? And I know we're still talking about the behavioral modifications. Yes. We'll come to them. But what is the, what's the long-term impact of this? What happens to the bladder? Does it, does it? The bladder will learn to hold more urine in. Oh. If you send the child just in case, you're keeping that bladder small. Okay. So don't send your child to go and urinate. Mm. This is the behavioral modification. Just in case. Ask your child, what does your bladder say? Do you have a small wee, a big wee, or no wee? If you ask any child, do you want to go make a wee? They go, no. Mm. It's actually, this is where the brain connection comes in. They short circuit the at the neck and go, no, mommy, I don't want to go. Mm. But if you ask the child, what does your bladder say? They go, mm, okay, I've mm. got a small wee. And if they say, I've got a small wee, then they don't need to go wee. They don't need to go Absolutely. wee. Absolutely. I'm understanding now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Do we, do we have any more of those behavioral modifications? I mean, I'm loving what you're sharing. And I think for me, it's because you're, you're making it so easy to understand, first of all. But most importantly, I think it is those very practical 
uh, steps and actions that we can take. So I love that, you know, you talked about the star chart earlier when we're really talking about how do we empower our children uh, around this. Uh, I loved your recommendations around the water intake. Uh, you know, really making sure that our children are hydrated through the day. Um, and then, of course, this lifting the child up at night and finally coming to kind of the just-in-case syndrome yes. and ready to start to speak to them in the language of their bladder. I mean, I love that. What is your bladder? Is it What, what is the question again? What does your bladder say? Yeah, what does your bladder say? Yeah. Small wee, big wee, or no wee? 100%. I love it. Let's talk about toilet behavior. Encourage your child to go and urinate as soon as they wake up. Because that is when you tell the brain, I'm awake, stop concentrating the urine, it's daytime, the kidneys can start to make more urination then. So you basically put your bladder back into day mode. Easy access to the toilets, good toilet behavior. Mm. A lot of kids are scared of the bathrooms. Yes. So what do they do? They avoid. Exactly. Yes. They hold it in. We've got so many kids that refuse to go to bathrooms at schools. You know, it's so funny. You're making me think about about my seven-year-old who who doesn't go because she's scared of the sound the toilet makes when she flushes. And I never would have made those links and associations that actually children do have – I mean, they have their own anxieties and fears and stresses around the toilet or the bathroom itself. Um, And I never would have made that connection. We have got so many children, we actually put iPods, earpods, into their ears to go to the bathroom so they don't hear the sound of the, of the flushing of the toilet. So they can overcome that. This is all very interesting. I mean, I want to, I want to explore, um, you know, further sort of ideas around uh, the behavioral modifications. Are there any exercises or physical therapies? Yes, um, there is. Okay. So first of all, before we get to the exercises, I want to tell you a last thing. Mm-hmm. If you go to a public toilet, mm-hmm. how do you sit on the toilet? I don't sit. Oh. Why? Is that the wrong answer yeah. again? Wrong. <laughs> Why don't you sit? Because I squat really well. No, no. I'm joking. Um, no, that's, it's, it's, that's it's because it's because if it's a public facility, then you're, you're nervous about germs and, and all that kind of thing. I just don't like to sit. They've done a, a culture ch- test on, on all these facilities, the handles of the toilet, the mm. seat. What was number one dirtiest ever? That pad that you type in your code at Willie's for your money. That was number one. Number two, the escalator. <laughs> I've heard that one. The toilet seat was past number 20 because it gets cleaned all the time. Oh, wow. Now, if you don't sit flat, you're making your pelvic floor tight. Mm. You're not emptying your bladder. Mm. Have you not realized when you get back home, you urinate again? Yes. Now, this is where the exercise comes in. If your pelvic floor, so this is how the bladder works. I told you that the bladder sends the signal to the brain. When Mm. you go and urinate, Mm. as you walk in and you go and sit on the toilet, the brain sends two messages, Mm -hmm. two different messages. Mm -hmm. The first message goes to the detrusital muscle. It contracts. To the what muscle? Detrusital muscle. That's the muscle on top of the bladder. Okay. It contracts. It's plated like like, like a little, you know, uh, a hair plate. Oh, like a, like a, like a, when you plate the hair. Yes, yeah. it looks like that. Yeah. So it contracts 
and it actually squeezes the urination out. The second message goes to the external sphincters, the pelvic floor muscles, you relax, you void. Now you are hanging in the air. Your pelvic floor muscles are not relaxed. So half of the urination actually comes out. And then you teach that bladder not to completely empty. Now, with exercises, we test as a neuroelectrophysiologist or as a physio can test that as well um, to test if those muscles, the nerves in the muscles, are they tight or not. Mm. Mostly what we see with a small bladder capacity in the child, but there's various of other tests that we do. We, we look at the bladder wall, if it's thick, what's the pre and post void mm. volume in the bladder. Then we give them exercise to fix that problem. Mm. And it's fixable. And, and at which point are they coming to you? Are they coming to some kind of medical specialist to assist them to deal with this problem? Because yes. you're saying in cases where, I mean, what, what would necessitate me coming to a healthcare professional with this, with this problem or this issue? So you can go to anybody with your child that has got bladder problems. Ah, okay. All right. So, Medication, normally they will assess the problem. What's the primary problem? Mm. They will give you the medication, but medication will not assist the nerves to fix the problem. Mm. It will assist your primary pro problem. So mm. with bedwetting, it can assist the hormone to release from the brain. Um, if your bladder is very, that instability bladder that we spoke about, mm. an anticholinergic hormone that we give to relax the nerves inside the bladder, mm. that it doesn't contract so much. But to look after the nerves in the pelvis, we look at the whole picture. So they will give the medication, they do the behavioral modification, and if there's a problem further on, because it's not everybody that needs that, yes. that therapeutic holistic look mm. more boys than girls so give me examples of the kind of you know of, of the kind of patient who'd come through your door to say i actually need assistance because well, i'm understanding that it's not it, it's not all cases that 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 necessitate going to some kind of specialist to assist us to correct or to solve whatever the problem 100%. is. So what are some of those cases? What are examples of those? So that is where the parents have been battling with a child with bedwetting and the child is older than five. Aha, uh -huh, okay. Six, seven, hmm. because the word out of in the, in the domain is your child will grow out of it. No, your child will not grow out of it. We had a 17-year-old the other day. This is so important. I've heard that your child will grow out of it. No. And you're saying your child will not grow out of it. Child will not grow out of it. Okay. These studies done as well is your child with bedwetting wakes up so tired in the morning. Hmm. They don't go in their deep sleep. Now you put the child in front of the TV, you're busy cooking, you're actually making the problem worse. Hmm. Because that child's still not going into the deep sleep. The brain is activated with the TV. Now, goes to bed. Within the first two hours of re-sleeping, that hormone is telling your brain to release. But your child's still, brain is still sure. remembering what was on the television. 
I mean, that's such an interesting point you've just made there. And it's actually making me remember a, a time. And in fact, it was a couple of weeks ago uh, when our famous seven-year-old uh, watched a movie. She watched a movie and I remember she was quite, um, quite nervous or scared um, after watching this children's movie. And this was close to her bedtime. She went to bed and the following morning she had wet the bed. Um, and I, and I want, I'm just wondering what the connection is between kind of the, the time we give our children, the time off or time away from screens prior to going to bed and whether this has any, you know, impact or contribution to, uh, that enuresis. Absolutely. So routine is very important to the kids. Mm. We normally say don't give TV time or iPad time two hours before they go and sleep. Yo. Max hour and a half. No, I know. It's difficult in our life. That blue light, mm. your brain does not switch off. If you know your child's bed routine at six o'clock every night, that brain's already starting to downscale to go and sleep Six o'clock. So by eight o'clock, that child's out. Mm. Now she's watching a TV program and a scary movie that's putting that time, that two hours later on, three, four hours. They've done major research, EEGs on the brain to prove prove this. So the child goes and sleep later. Mm. They're not going into their deep sleep. So it's... Then everybody thinks it's a psychological thing, but it's a really physiological thing. Hmm. And I think it's encouraging when you know it's physiologic, physiological because, you know, to, to all of the beautiful, uh, you know, suggestions, tips, recommendations you've given, uh, we can do something about it. We're empowered to actually make those behavioral modifications. And I think for me, that's why I'm going, well, if it's physiological, I can do something about it. Absolutely. And it's so easy. Mm. It is so easy. But it's the time that it takes to do it. So we've got to make the time to do this. Yes. Is what I'm hearing you say. Uh, change some of those terrible habits. Um, and I know that we've, we've got those habits even as adults where you sleep, you know, uh, just before you go to bed, you're on your cell phone, et cetera. And we know that that has implications as well. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the role that positive reinforcement plays in, uh, behavioral modifications, uh, for, for enuresis. Oh, we see it so often in the practice. If the parents doesn't buy in, to that behavioral modification, you're going to get nowhere with your child. The child copy and paste. If you don't drink your water regularly, mm-hmm. why must they drink their waters regularly? If they don't go, if they don't go to bed early mm. and they see you don't go to bed early, why must they do it? So we empower the child to explain to them, number one, mm. what is going on in their bodies mm. and give them the option. You can have Coke, drink Coke. Coke is not a good thing for your bladder at night. And we show them, there you can see you drank Coke, there you can see you wet the bed, yeah, but mommy and daddy's drinking Coke. And the parents go, no, we will drink our Coke. Yeah. How's that going to help the child? And we say we will drink our Coke because we don't wet the bed. Exactly. (laughs) So we empower the kids so much that we tell them, you're the boss of your bladder now. Mm. Those kids come back and they tell them the parents, my mommy gave me this. My mm. mommy gave me that. 
Sure. And those kids that really understand, they get better. And then we also teach the kids that's got those daytime problem behaviors as well, like mm. small bladder capacities that needs to go to the bathroom often. We create a special code word for them, for the child, a sign for the teacher that they don't get that embarrassed. So that positive reinforcement that is so important. You have to have that child's buy-in buy into mm. this. Once they understand this, so we've got kids that's four years old that's got daytime problems mm. that we need to fix as well. Mm. But already there we're doing the reinforcement. Those kids, quick, we can see the changes happens very quickly. So parents have, have a huge role to play. I mean, this is where I think you're touching a little bit on the, I mean, there's the behavior change in terms of that routine, certainly. But you're also touching a little bit on the psychological aspect, which is, you know, encouraging them, um, really kind of being mindful about not making them feel ashamed, etc. Yes. I mean, where does that shame come from? And this is, I mean, this is just me thinking off of the top of my head. Why, why do we associate bedwetting or enuresis with kind of, you must feel shameful? It's, it's, it's embarrassing. Why? Your child is the best. Your child is the cleverest. Your child is the prettiest. Hmm. Bedwetting is one of the downfalls of so many parents do not want to admit that kids are bedwetters. And I suppose the reason I'm asking that question, because I hear what you've just responded to, the reason I'm asking that question is because what if this was treated as part and parcel of one's, you know, growth and development journey or process? What if we, we changed our mindset around Absolutely. it and said perhaps we, we've been looking at it in the, in the wrong ways, one, um, to say something is wrong with this child but we haven't even done the work as parents of helping our children to understand how their bladders work. I mean, you, you spoke about how uh, earlier you said we should be asking our children the question, you know, what does your bladder say? What's it saying to you? Yes. I mean, that's, that's new to me. It's, it's, it's something that I would never have occurred to me to even think to ask. And yet there's so much pressure put on this little person when they do wet the bed. Even important for me to realize that you know, one of the causes could be parents who used to be bedwetters. So it's not only on this, on this poor child. And the child loves that. They love to hear that it wasn't their fault. Mm. But even then the child's parents that was not bedwetters, you give them that empowerment to fixing. Mm. And they do it. That child walks out like a different little human being mm. when they are fixed. I hear that. They're positive. They smile. They're not that embarrassed little boy that come and hide behind his mom mm. or, or little girl behind dad's arms. I mean, this is very important. And I think of it even in the context of if children have siblings. If there's shame around bedwetting, uh, you know, in the family, you know, you get the little one who's still wetting the bed and maybe an older sibling sort of judging them harshly and also you know, being unkind to them. And so I really think that there is an opportunity for us to think about that mindset shift uh, around uh, enuresis and, you know, and then take the steps to 
to really make those behavioral modifications that you shared with us. Let me ask a follow-on question. And this is about, you know, let's imagine that I start to apply some of what you've shared here. And I do it consistently. I think you spoke about the importance of routine and consistency. How long does it typically take to see results uh, from those behavioral modifications? In the practice, maximum three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. But that's on the behavioral modification. So if a child has not taken in the proper fluid and the child's constipated, and the constipation is one of the causes of the enuresis within three weeks, and we impl- implement a bowel program within f- three weeks, the tummy is normal, they're drinking enough, they'll be able to control the bladder even more, the only time that within that three weeks that we don't see any changes, if nothing was done. Mm. Okay. So we get those families that wants a pull to fix everything. And then we get the parents because sometimes you can't give the kid a, a tablet. They're Mm-mm. too small. Or there's, there's other neurological problems. So you can fix a child with behavioral modifications. So, so, so I'm just trying to understand. So if somebody came to your practice um, and they had this, this challenge with enuresis, uh, you're saying that if you gave us those or you, or you said, you know, here are some of the behavioral modifications that can assist us in terms of addressing the issues. If there's no further complication or any other underlying issue, it could take up to three weeks for us to start to see results. Exactly. But hence, if it's a secondary enuresis, if it's primary enuresis where the child doesn't release that hormone, mm. we then give medication. Uh-huh. But even with that, we make that part and parcel of the behavioral modifications and we see a difference. And are there any risks or potential side effects associated with that approach? So you're saying we give certain medication um, and we, we combine that with the behavioral modifications. Any associated risks there? There's risk with anything. So we follow up those kids with extreme care. We see them regularly because you don't want that child to relapse. Mm. Finish their medication, they dry, we take them off the medication, and all of a sudden they relapse and they wet again. We don't want that. You don't mm. want to do that to a child. Is it, is it normal, uh, Lizelle, for a child or for someone who stopped bedwetting to find themselves in a situation where, and it doesn't even have to be that six-month period you spoke about, where you mm. said in the secondary uh, in uresis, it's a situation where they stop bedwetting, a couple of months pass, and then they, they, they bedwet again. Is it possible that even like a year or two may pass, and then something happens and they wet their bed? Of course. Okay. Of course, little girls can get blood infections. Aha. Uh-huh. You can move house, start a new school. So stress, stress could could yes, and now what is very prevalent is bullying. Sure, and so the reason this is an important question is because I think sometimes we've we've seen this, uh, you know, where where a child undergoes some kind of stress, which necessarily leads to a change in behaviour, and one of them being that now all of a sudden they're wetting their bed again. Meanwhile, they they were no longer wetting the bed, and I suppose there again. You know, it's it's the role parents must play. Uh, step in and understand what's happening with your child. 100%. You also don't want to give the parent the complete role. So you do give the child that ability to play the boss of his own little bladder, the boss of his own little personality. Mm. And they buy into it. And together, 
we can do it. But when a parent doesn't have the time, doesn't have the place, it's a quick fix, you're not going to get anywhere. We mm. see it regularly. And I imagine that this language of, you know, you're the boss of your bladder would necessarily start at a young age. Very I mean, young. I'm thinking about how if I went back to my seven-year-old now and I said, you know, Kizzle, you are the boss of your bladder. She might look at me like, what are you talking about? Um, and so I suppose for me, I have the question, when do we start with this? The shift in mindset and this type of, of way of engagement with our kids. And is it ever too late? It's never too late. We start with kids 15-year-old. Really? Yes. We've got a child, like I said earlier, 17, that did not understand what the bladder sensation feels like. Sure. Sure. Small bladder capacity didn't understand what's the difference between a small bladder capacity and a big bladder capacity. My little two-year-old, I started to explain to her when she was 18 months. You don't want to start too soon, but you explain to, you know, explain to them when you teach them the body parts. So help me. So I have an 18-month-old. How do I start that? How do I start that conversation? I mean, if, if it they is that. start it. What does that mean? They start the conversation. When you start to tell them this is your leg, that is your arm, when they get to the private parts and they're interested in the private parts, that is where you can start to explain to them, oh. look, the urine comes out of there. Uh-huh. They don't understand why. We've got a lot of kids that doesn't even want to have a bowel movement. They squeeze and hold. So in caprices, that soiling happens. Mm. They don't understand the sensation of having a bowel movement. What's coming out of my body? This is foreign. Now I need to keep it in. Have you not heard of those kids that go and stand and make a bowel movement behind curtains or behind a couch? Don't they all do that? That's what no. the 18-month-old does. No, no, no. But they need to understand what happens. Okay. And they're not stupid. If you explain to them, you eat germs with your food, you eat germs with something that you drink, mm. and when you urinate, we need to evacuate the germs, evacuate the germs from a bowel perspective. They understand. They don't lie to the kids. Okay. I mean, I love what you're saying, that you could start as soon as possible, but also that it's never too late. It's never too late. And, I mean, what, what advice then would we give to parents who are dealing with bedwetting in their children? You know, and, and, and this is across the entire spectrum. So whether it's a, you know, six, seven-year-old, um, all the way up to parents who are dealing with a child who's bedwetting as a teenager even, what, what would you say to them? Number one, don't wait. Go to your medical professional. Go and seek advice if your child is older than five. Go and see what's wrong. Because mm-hmm. it can be two methodologies that's wrong. Primary enuresis or secondary enuresis with an infection or constipation. Mm. When the child is very young, normally your child will tell you as well, look, like you're 18 months old. We'll have this conversation in four months and you'll tell me, Zal, they're starting to go to the toilet herself because they copy and paste these brothers and copy and paste these sisters. Mm. And and for those who you're saying, you know, don't wait, um, and and you're recommending that perhaps they seek some kind of professional medical help, what would their first port of call be? Is it just the GP? Yeah, 
Yeah, your GPs go to the GPs. They know how to treat it when it's a complicated case. The GPs will refer to the urologist. Or you can come to us directly. Okay. But the medical professionals is out there. Okay. Wonderful. And and if we're talking to somebody who is, uh, you know, this is an individual who has listened to this uh, podcast and they're dealing with enuresis, um, how do they monitor their progress, um, particularly if they're going to adopt some of those behavioral modifications? The progress is amazing. And I think that's what I'm living for. The person with instable bladder, irritable bladder, overactive bladder, they don't need to go and do toilet mapping anymore. Toilet mapping meaning I don't need to go and urinate every 10 minutes. The kid that's got enuresis is starting to sleep three days, four days, Mm -hmm. the next week five days dry. They cannot wait to come and tell us that they are three days dry. You see that, and we chart all those. Mm -hmm. We've got physiological goals and, and programs that, the kids has got stickers which they put on that encourage them to let's go and show them. Mm. And that motivates them as well. That's amazing to hear uh, because one thinks about it within the context of one's general quality of life. You know, that this would necessarily see an improvement um, in terms of one's quality of life. Absolutely. The personalities change. You get a new kid. That's amazing. Are there any resources available for individuals seeking more information? Um, you know, a family who say we were looking to get some kind of support and in particular around the use of these behavioral modifications. There is very good social support out there. Fearing has got a stunning website. Eric, E-R-I-C dot com. That's the inuresisweb.com. Our website, eurotherapy.co.za. But if you, I always say to the patient, if you Google and you see three websites say the same thing, Mm. that is what you go with. And that's brilliant advice because Google can mislead us. Exactly. But Google is also right. 100%. So if you see three sets of the same advice, or if you see one advice and it's repeated two times by other sources, you know that's the right thing. You listen to that one. Yes. Okay, perfect. So so I am going to bring it to a close. Um, and really, this has been so insightful and informative. And I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to share just as a parting shot uh, with our listeners. There's so much more. <laughs> there's so much more. I think don't be embarrassed about it. Hmm. I've heard from parents that sit at so- the soccer fields and are too embarrassed to talk about other mothers about it. That is where you find out what to do, what not to do. Those mothers, the soccer moms that sit there, they normally know what is going on. And if you're not part of the soccer mom club, you know your child. Don't wait. Mm-hmm. If people tell you there's nothing wrong with your child and you feel in your heart there's something wrong, source. Thank you so much. I think that's incredibly powerful. Really encouraging um, to somebody who has who's sitting with this, you know, and there's so much stigma around it. So I suppose for me, some of my key takeaways are that uh, this is physiological and, you know, we can do something about it. And I think for me, it is about making some of those behavioral modifications and being consistent. 
making the time to do this because the end result is a happier child, a vibrant child, a confident child. And I think all of us want that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Sula. And keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hashtag Fairing Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Fairing South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Fairing IBD Health Diary app today. The Fairing IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.